Good morning. Well, last week was fun. It was uh, an, an easy passage to teach. The uh, stories were so vivid, vivid the, the message was just sitting there. And uh, like I said, it was really easy to teach. This week, I haven't found quite so easy. The uh, stories are still vivid, and the message kind of looks like it's just sitting there. But that's part of what uh, concerns me. This morning, we're going to be talking a little bit about suffering, about death. And the easy answers, the ones that are just kind of laying there, sometimes don't really match up with our experience. Whenever we talk about suffering, we're walking through a dangerous jungle of misconception, of hurtful theologies, of presumption, sometimes even uh, superstition, where a, a careless slip, careless step can cause enormous pain to people who are dealing with these enemies, suffering and death. So I want to walk very carefully, extremely carefully. I want to say right off the bat that uh, we don't have time for a thorough consideration of the entire topic. We're going to only be looking at, at, at it from one angle. But having said that, let's jump in. Turn to Luke 8, if you haven't already. Luke 8, we're going to start with verse 40. We're going to be looking again at our Lord, His wisdom, His love. But let me just read the first couple of verses to get us started. Luke eight forty. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. Now if you remember last week, Jesus healed the man with all the demons, scared the heck out of the people over there. They begged him to leave. So Jesus complies and leaves the man behind as a witness to help them get over their fears. But he comes back to the other side of the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And here's all the crowds that he left the day before, still waiting for him, expecting him. And this guy named Jairus comes up, falls Jesus' feet and begs Jesus to come with him to heal his daughter. That's all pretty straightforward. Except we're told in Luke that this man was a ruler of the synagogue. You need to understand what a ruler of the synagogue was. A ruler of a synagogue was the most important, influential man in any city, any town. Back in, in Jerusalem, you had the high priests and the Sanhedrin, who were really the key figures in the central government. But out in the cities and the towns away from Jerusalem... The most important man, the, mo- the key figure, was the ruler of the synagogue. This was almost always uh, a very wealthy man, a very well politically connected man. He took care of, he administrated the synagogue, decided what they did, who was allowed to teach, what was allowed to be taught. you got to realize the synagogue was not just the center of religious life. It was also the center of civic and social life as well. Now, this man, Jairus, had a lot to overcome to come to Jesus. And I realized what he had to deal with. The the religious leaders back in Jerusalem had already decided that Jesus was the enemy. That uh, they'd accused him of being demon-possessed. They'd already sent word out to stop him from speaking in the synagogues. Jairus himself may have have, uh, sent Jesus away at some point. Jairus had to overcome 
his own prejudice. Uh, he probably learned to look at Jesus and everything Jesus said and did with suspicion. Learned to, to try to uh, cast uh, a negative light on as much as he could. Jairus had to overcome his, his pride. Now here he was, the, the top of the heap, the top of the religious ladder, social ladder. And here's this Jesus, this nobody, this Johnny come lately. Jairus had to overcome peer pressure. You know, what are his friends going to think? They're going to be angry at him. They're going to feel betrayed. Or they're going to look at him as a, as a pitiful fool. You know, to them, it probably looked like he was joining some weird fringe religious cult. Jairus had to overcome his own dignity. I mean, here he was in his fine, rich, pinstriped robe, falling down at the feet of a man in a common denim robe of a carpenter, a, a laborer. So Jairus had a lot overcome. But he had some help. His little girl was dying. Now, last week we talked about fear. What greater fear could there be than this? Jairus had watched his little girl getting weaker and weaker. Sicker and sicker. Nothing worked. Probably tried everything and everyone. It's almost desperate. So he had come to the point where his pride, his dignity... His social standing, these things that at one time mattered so much to him, he sees them now for what they are, the empty shells that they are. And I think here we get uh, our first clue to understanding suffering. Here's a man who was sufficient in himself. He had everything he needed. He was at the top of the heap. How is a man like this ever going to recognize his need for the Lord? How's he ever going to realize that the things that that he's pursuing are never going to touch his deepest needs, the thing that he was created for, the thing that his heart really longs for? See, quite honestly, misery is the next best thing to ultimate fulfillment. Far better than our weak, distracting, unfulfilling pleasures that we seek. George MacDonald said, If thou art not willing that God should have his way with thee, then in the name of God be miserable, till thy misery drive thee to the arms of the Father. See, often our uh, suffering is an expression of God's grace, because there's no other way that we would overcome the, the high hurdles that keep us from coming to the Lord. Now, we shouldn't uh, assume or imagine that God enjoys our pain, that, that He likes suffering. Now, God feels it with us. He goes through the hurts and the pains of life with us, perhaps feeling them even more acutely than we. But He is willing to suffer with us, to go through life with us, in order that we might experience the, 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 the greater good, the, 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 the deeper peace and joy that can come only from Him. Now we also should not um, suppose that suffering comes directly from His hand. 
He's not the inventor of suffering. He's not the creator, the designer of these things. These things, sickness and disease and uh, families falling apart and teenage rebellion and financial ruin, these things bear the trademark of the enemy. But having said that, that doesn't let God off the hook entirely. He is still sovereign. He is still absolutely in control. And anything that comes into our lives, He allows, He chooses not to veto. So if you are suffering, if there is some hard situation, He is the one to go to. He is the one in charge. Most importantly, most clearly, He is the one who can rescue you in the midst of it. The sad truth is that most of us will never face our need for Him if we can at all avoid it. We will do just about anything we can to maintain our independence from Him. Now, we may uh, live a good Christian life. We may uh, thank the good Lord. We go to church, sing the songs faithfully. But when it really comes down to it, in our heart of hearts, we still think we know best. That we can do it ourselves, that we don't really need Him. See, it isn't until we come up against something, until we hit the wall, we encounter something that is so far beyond us, that we realize that we've never really been in control in the first place. That's when we begin to face our inadequacy. You know, one of the things that we've observed here on, on staff as we do marriage counseling is how many men fail to even recognize that their marriage is disintegrating until their wives have had more than they can take until they're headed for the door. So many men are, are so committed to, to, to playing the games, to, to, to convincing themselves that they're in control. And then they wake up and realize that it's completely out of their control. So far out of their control, they don't even know what the problem is and having a clue how to fix it. They're overwhelmed. They're confused. Fortunately, it's often at this point that many of them will turn to God and recognize that they can't do it on their own, that they need Him. Unfortunately, sometimes it's too late to save the marriage. I can't tell you how many of, uh, of my friends who are divorced told me that as, as horrible, as painful as that time was and, and continues to be, it was still during that time they first took their relationship with God seriously. They look back at that time as an expression of God's grace. The other day I was talking to a man who told me he had never had any time for God. Religion was uh, good for his wife and children, but he had other pressing things to attend to as he lay on the gurney getting ready to be taken into surgery he recognized just how much he needed God no one else could go in there with him another couple was telling me about some of the struggles they were having with the teenage son they told me how they had never needed God they're both good people both very successful But as they faced a rebellion that they just couldn't understand, they found a freedom to to admit 
their need, to admit that they couldn't do it all themselves, and to turn to God and to pour their hearts and their needs out to God. You know, the list goes on. People, friends who've lost their job, or who are dealing with some emotion, some behavior in their life that's out of control, who are coping with uh, revelations of abuse, who are struggling with alcoholism. Now, all of these things, as horrible and as painful as they are, things still are the avenues that God used to bring them to himself, to express his grace, to help them come to a place where they can find their deeper needs, their deeper longings met. All of these things, an expression of God's grace. And one of the things that I am sadly certain of here is that there are many of you out there listening who are still letting your pride get in the way. You don't want to get too far into this religion thing. You know, what are your friends? What's your family? What are the people at work going to think? You may have already thought about how bad it would be to let God be in control, how unfun, unfulfilling, joyless it would be. Maybe uh, you're trying to live the Christian life on your own. But it's you doing it. You're not letting God live His life through you. Not letting Him express His love through you. Maybe you're too sophisticated for this religious stuff. You're still convinced you can do it on your own. God is a good ornament in your life, but you don't really need Him. Well, if any of these places is where you are, I pray for you. You probably don't like what I pray. Because what I pray is that God would corner you. That he would let you come to the end of yourself. That you would be absolutely miserable. Until you really, until you really let Jesus be in charge. Be the one in control of your life. Otherwise you go through life missing life. Settling for a a, a shallow emptiness. A quiet despair, rather than the abundant life that Jesus came to give. Let me encourage you. There's no need for you to wait until your world crashes down around you. You're not a dumb mule that needs to get hit in the head with a two-by-four to turn around. Stop right now. Turn to him. Admit that you need Him, that you cannot do it on your own. Admit to yourself and to Him. Confess that you want Him. Ask Him to take charge of your life. And then listen to what He says. Obey Him. I don't think you'll have to wait real long. My guess is there'll be some relationship that needs repairing, someone you need to ask forgiveness of, some hidden thing that needs to be thrown away, some obligation to fulfill. You see, demonstrate by your obedience that you really are turning it over to Him, giving Him control of your life. If you're uh, suffering the collapse of your world already, don't resist Him. Now realize that all suffering is not a result of resisting God. Suffering does not mean you're doing something wrong. There's plenty of suffering when you're not doing anything wrong. 
But you see, all suffering is an opportunity to draw close to God. And if you are suffering specifically because you are resisting, stop. Bring out the white flag. You know, America has always been known for generosity toward people that we defeat in war. But the Marshall Plan was nothing compared to your father's generous plans for his surrendering child. See, don't stiffen. Don't let demonic pride, concern for what other people think, stand in the way. Throw those things away as the, as the trash that they really are. Come to him. Turn to him. He loves you enough to come after you. If he didn't love you, he'd just let you go. Let you continue through life seeking things that will never satisfy. Never coming to grips with your ultimate need for him. You were created for him. He loves you enough to stop you in your tracks, to bring you to face that. Follow Jairus' example. Throw yourself at your Lord's feet. That was not compromise. That was absolute, unconditional surrender. That's what you need. Well, let's uh, continue through the story. Let me read the next part of the story. Jairus humbles himself, turns to Jesus, and this is what happens. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. And they all denied it. Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him, how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now think about what's going on here. Jairus had come to Jesus. He had humbled himself before Jesus. He was in crisis. His little girl was dying. He was panicked. He was scared. So he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, come with me, please. My girl's dying. Jesus, it's okay. He's coming with him. And I'm sure Jairus was in front trying to get the crowds out of his way, trying to hurry Jesus along. His daughter's going to die any minute. It must have been driving him crazy how slow it was to try to get through the crowds. And then Jesus stops. He turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples, who were probably pretty pleased that a, a, a man as important and influential as Jairus had come to them to, to, to get help, are probably getting pretty impatient. Peter says, hey, Jesus, what do you mean, who touched me? There are people pushing you from every side. Get real here. we got an emergency. Let's go. And still, Jesus just stands there, waits. And I can feel the, the tension rising in Jairus' chest. And here comes this woman. She throws herself at Jesus' feet in front of all these people, tells him what happened, that she had touched him, why she had touched him. Now, here's this, this woman. She uh, had plenty to overcome herself to come to Jesus. You know, Jairus was in crisis. His little girl was dying right now. His, his need was immediate and, and, and intense. 
This woman's need was long-term. She'd been suffering for 12 years. For 12 years, she'd been asking God to heal her, waiting for God to heal her, and He hadn't. For 12 years, she'd been suffering from from a a vaginal hemorrhage, kind of like a 12-year menstrual period. Nobody could help her. Mark, we're told that uh, she'd been to every doctor. She'd spent every penny that she had. I mean, there's no telling what this poor woman had been through. And not only that, but that particular problem would have rendered her, in that society, would have rendered her unclean, a reject from society. So not only was she penniless, but she was cut off from her friends and her family. Yet she continued to hope. And what courage to continue to hope for 12 years. She sneaks up behind Jesus. She touches his robe and immediately she knows that she's healed. She can tell. Finally, she's found the one who can meet her need. You know, if God had healed her 12 years ago, then she would have had her needs met. She never would have kept looking. She would have never found the one who not only could meet her need for physical healing, but could meet her deeper needs as well. You see, Jesus wasn't satisfied just meeting her physical needs. If he was, he'd have just kept walking. He didn't need to stop. She was healed. He didn't have to break stride. He could have kept going, come back and found her. But you see... He knew there were deeper needs, more important needs that needed to be addressed. This woman believed enough to believe that Jesus could heal her physically, but she couldn't quite believe that if he knew who she was, that he would really accept her. I mean, she's a social outcast. She is defiled. She's unclean. And he's a righteous rabbi. For her to touch him would have defiled him. He'd have every reason to be angry. She expected him to be angry, but he wasn't. He was pleased. She expected him to reject her, but he didn't. He loved her. He accepted her. So if Jesus had just let her go, continuing to think that she had, she had stolen something from him, she had snuck, she had tricked it out of him, she never would have had the deeper, more profound needs of her soul, of her heart met. Sure, she would have still been physically healed, but she would have never known the deeper healing of being accepted exactly as she is. See, the, the, the thing that kept this woman away from Jesus wasn't her pride. It was her sense of unworthiness. And that can be just about as, as strong an impediment to coming to Jesus as pride. So many people think that they've got to clean up their act. They've got to get their life together before they can come to Jesus. How silly it is to think that you only go see a doctor once you've cured yourself. Jesus wants you just the way you are. With those gross sins, those habits, those desires. See, He will accept you. He will forgive you. He will change you and cleanse you. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. There's no reason to hold back. He wants you just the way you are. Now I want to hurry back to Jairus. What do you think he must have been going through while all of this is, is going on? 
Well, he's, here he is, a very important, influential man, humbled himself before Jesus. And here is this woman, this social outcast, this poor person. And Jesus stops and keeps him waiting. Not only that, this woman has had this problem for 12 years. Another day isn't going to matter. She can wait. His little girl can't. And if I was Jairus, I would have bit through my lip by now. I've been so frustrated. Here he is. He comes and he humbles himself before Jesus. And this is how Jesus treats him. I thought when you come to Jesus, things were supposed to start getting better. They get worse for Jairus. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And you can almost feel the bitterness. It says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Or it means to annoy, to inconvenience. Don't inconvenience him anymore. It's too late. He can't help you. You wasted your time. Jairus is looking foolish in front of his friends. Jesus hears this and he turns to Jairus. Verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just continue to believe and she will be healed. She says, don't let your fear overwhelm your trust. Keep trusting me. Hang in there. Now, I can't think of any reason why Jairus should. Jesus had let him down. Jesus had failed him. His little girl was dead. I mean, the very thing that he was afraid of is what happened. This is where the, the, the mystery of grace begins. So often, the way that God frees us releases the the binds of our fears is not by taking away what scares us, but by taking us right through it. And as we go through it with Him, in, in some unexplainable way, we begin to experience inexpressible peace, freedom from fear, knowing that He is absolutely in control, that He is in charge. Jairus exhibits a faith that I really covet. He simply continues to walk with Jesus. In the midst of his pain. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't explode in anger. He simply keeps following. That's faith. Without knowing how it could possibly work out. Without any strong sense of hope in the situation looking at Jesus and saying, I trust you, and just keep walking, following him. And in the process, I think Jairus was transformed. Ben Patterson in his book, Waiting, says, Waiting is not just the thing that we have to do until we get what we hope for. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what we hope for. See, having to wait for Jesus, Jairus has burned out of him any last vestiges of a demanding spirit, any last vestiges of kind of this concept that God exists for our convenience to make us feel better about ourselves. Instead, Jairus sees in Jesus someone who is greater than he, someone whom he can trust in spite of what the eyes of his flesh see. Jairus is changed. He is freed by the severe mercy of our Lord. Now, in some ways, I would have uh, been more comfortable if the story had ended here. 
Unfortunately, God doesn't listen to me when he wrote the Bible. It seems like it would be more realistic if it stopped here, but it doesn't. So let me keep reading. Starting with verse 51. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Let me make a couple of observations about the stories that, that keeps going. First of all, Jesus is not naive. He knows that she is dead. But you see, with Jesus, death isn't final. With Jesus, death is not the end of the story, ever. And when Jesus tells them to stop wailing, he's not being insensitive. You know, it sounds like he's saying, you know, big girls don't cry. Come on. Be tough. You see, Jesus never despises true grief. When um, Martha was weeping at the death of her brother Lazarus, it broke Jesus' heart. Jesus wept. But you see, what's going on here, as you can tell partly from the words that are used here, these people were causing a big commotion. They're putting on a big show for this influential man, showing how broken up they are. And you can see how superficial their grief was when it immediately turns into ridiculing laughter. And Jesus says that she's just asleep. So Jesus gets rid of them all, just takes the mom and the dad and his three disciples into the bedroom. This was not done to impress these other people, these people who were unable to, to, to comprehend the grace of God and the peace that God gives at a time like this. Verse 54, But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus takes the little girl by the hand, very gently says, get up, and she gets up. And he, then he tells uh, them to give her something to eat. I, I think Jesus is, is paying attention to the needs of this little girl who's probably pretty bewildered by all of this commotion around her, her parents' excitement and crying with joy and jumping up and down and hugging her. And Jesus says, you know, calm down, give her something to eat. Then he tells them again not to tell anyone. This was not done for show. This was done out of compassion for Jairus. Jesus loved Jairus and wanted to show him who he was. See, and Jairus trusting Jesus, even when it seemed too late, even when it seemed ridiculous, Jesus showed Jairus things that he could not even imagine. Now the reason I would have been more comfortable had this story ended earlier is that most stories have a different ending. In most of the stories that I'm involved in, the, the girl dies and stays dead. Now this almost feels like a television show that resolves itself in a half hour. Everybody lives happily ever after. See, in my experience, it doesn't work that nicely, that neatly. Now I know... That Jesus is teaching his disciples, showing them that he reaches beyond death. I know that Jesus, like we said, is loving Jairus. Is showing him that if he will trust him, even when it seems too late, even when it seems ridiculous, that he will show him things he couldn't imagine. And quite honestly, that's always God's design when he requires that we wait. 
His desire is to show us things about Himself, to show us His love in ways we never could have learned any other way. Again, Ben Patterson, in that same book, talking about Abraham and Sarah, their long, painful wait for a child, he says, Take heart, you who wait. What God did for Abraham and Sarah, He does for all who wait for Him. He is for you and not against you. He feels your ache. He hears your groaning. And if He is silent now as He was for so many years with Abraham and Sarah, it is the silence of His higher thoughts. He is up to something so big and so unimaginably good that your mind cannot contain it. But how do we hold on when it seems like he really is blowing it? When it seems like he has waited too long to meet our need, that he has ignored us too long? Well, then we've got no place else to turn but faith. We've got to believe him. We've got to believe his word. We've got to believe his character, his mercy. See, a story like this, a passage of scripture like this, does not say, does not teach us that God will always meet our need here and now like that. He will always bring relief from a crisis here and now. But it does teach us that Jesus will never turn away any who come to him, that he always loves us. That no matter what our crisis, we can come counting on his compassion, counting on his love. And that in the midst of a crisis, as as the, the pain and the difficulty and the confusion grows more intense, we discover that our experience of his grace grows more intense right along with it. See, Jesus' character never changes. He will always be loving. He will always be kind, gentle. Generous. His character never changes. But what his character, what that loving character leads him to do in any given situation, we cannot predict. I don't know why he heals some of disease and not others. Quite honestly, at times, that confuses me and troubles me. I would like a prayer for healing to always work. But it doesn't always work. Yet I know that he is good and that His grace can take us through anything. Now let me uh, give a real brief warning here. So often when God is taking someone through something, we don't know what He's doing, whether He's teaching a lesson, whether He's overcoming barriers to faith. That may very well be, but that's for Him to say. It's not for us to say. It's presumptuous of us to imply that somebody is suffering because they need more faith. It's wrong for us to suggest that they're suffering because God is punishing them. And we're in danger of becoming like Job's friends who thought they knew it all, but we're just fools. We don't know it all. And even if we did, it's not our job to say. Our job is to come alongside, to love people, to embrace their pain with them and walk through it with them. Let God speak for God. He is capable and He will do it. In fact, that's the point of it all. It's for people to come directly to Him, to know Him, to hear Him, for us as sufferers to turn to Him and to cling to Him and to listen to Him. The eternal purpose in the entire plan 
is intimacy with Him. Listening to Him. Walking with Him. Let me just end with uh, a brief story and a quote. About four years ago, I was talking with a, a man whose wife was dying of cancer. And he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to heal her. In fact, as she got sicker, he refused to even consider the possibility that she would die. From this very passage that we've looked at, he believed that if he would just believe it, Jesus would raise her up. And on the morning that his wife died, a very wise, sensitive nurse said to him, Jesus has healed her. Jesus has raised her up. Today, right now, she stands before him whole and healed. See, part of the message of this story is that Jesus reaches beyond the grave. Death is not the end of the story. The fact is that much of our deliverance won't come in this world. But that doesn't diminish the, the, the value of it. That doesn't diminish or detract from the reality of it. That doesn't detract from the joy of it. And the quote is by George MacDonald. What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help to drive us to God? Hunger may drive a runaway child home, and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other need. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is what drives us to prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with our God, our eternal need. What I long for, for myself as well as for each person here, is I would put away our pride, the things that keep us from really giving ourselves to God, that would put away our sense of unworthiness and recognize that He wants us just the way we are. I want to respond to the difficulties of life, not with irritation that He hasn't served me better, But in the midst of the the difficulties and the struggles and the hurts of life, to see them as an opportunity to serve or to to, to draw close to the one I serve, to, to obey Him more completely, to trust Him more completely, to follow Him more closely. Well, let's pray. Lord, I uh, just confess how little we understand about suffering, about what you take us through. We know that you are good. At times, it just feels like you're waiting too long, that you're not responding to an emergency, that you're leaving us waiting for year after year, and we despair. Lord, we want to be like Jairus. We want to be like this woman who continue to fall at your feet. Whatever else, Lord, draws to yourself. Amen.
morning we're going to celebrate communion together to take the cup. If you're new here, uh, you're sure welcome to join us. We pass out the uh, bread first and then take it all together. And we'll do the same with the cup. But this time what I would like you to do as the bread is being passed out, I praise him is going to sing. What I would like you to do is to to uh, think about our Lord's suffering. He suffered and he died to make that communion with God possible. We exist to serve him, yet he serves us so wonderfully. So I want you to think about how much he loves you, how strongly he has pursued you, giving his life for you.